Welcome everyone to episode eight of season five of the Northern Spin podcast. My name is Michael Taylor by day. I'm the editor of Business Desk here in the Northwest, but this is a politics podcast and I'm joined by Chris McGuire from Business Cloud. Hot from defending the Conservatives, now he's going to be defending the BBC today. Absolutely. I thought oh. you Tories got stuck into the BBC. You I'm a lowercase like C. I'm the, a lowercase C Conservative. Broadcasting Corporation. No, no, no. As always, you're slightly, uh, slightly awry with the facts. I'm a lowercase C Conservative, um, and and I believe in, uh, you know, calling and holding the BBC to account, but also defending them. And I think we need, uh, we do need to defend them. Um, so, in a slight departure from the normal format of Northern Spin, we're going to do a deep dive in section one on the BBC. It's twelve years since huge parts of the BBC decamped to Media City. I remember it uh, in Salford, but the Beeb is a perennial um, political football, often kicked by the Conservatives, as you mentioned there earlier, um, constantly needing to justify its future. So we're going to offer some insights across a number of key areas, but it's not been a good week for your mate, Kia. My mate. <laughs> yeah. So do, do you mean that in the uh, genuinely he's my friend? Um, which you sometimes use, no, or, the, I, I, or that you're using it that I'm I'm an enemy of it. It's like you'd say your mate Dominic Cummings. Or no, something. you're 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 reading into it when there's no, no need to read into it. So just for, just for the purposes of clarity, everybody, yeah, yeah. Uh, Keir Starmer is the leader of the Labour Party, and Chris yeah. is trying to link me to him yeah. and saying that it's been a tough week for Keir Starmer, which indeed it has. Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham, the Deputy Mayor, and ten other leaders across Greater Manchester have called for a ceasefire in Gaza by all sides, and that has increased the pressure on Sir Keir. Starmer, so we, we will discuss that in uh, the second bit or uh, the first bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've accused Labour of not having any new ideas of their own. Now their shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, has been exposed for nicking other people's ideas, um, for allegedly copying chunks of her new book, The Women Who Made Modern Politics. So we'll be discussing that and how damaging that is to Labour. Hope you're not going to defend that, Michael. Well, the book's called The Women Who Made Modern Economics. What did I say? Uh, politics. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And and also, she hasn't been accused of copying big chunks of other people's ideas. Quite the contrary. Uh, but anyway, we'll discuss that when we get nearer the time. Um, before all that, we've got a few thank yous to make, starting with our friends at What Media, who produce this podcast every week. They've been off winning global awards. Absolutely. Well done to them. Um, yeah, what the, what's, what's been going on well, with that? They won, they won the Best Travel Tech Provider Award at the prestigious Global Youth Travel Awards in Lisbon in front of 500 people. That's for a piece of technology that they've got called ABC. Um, amazing piece of work. They beat up some stiff competition and it was a public vote which made their success all the sweeter. So well done to What Media. Yeah, it's the first big award that What Media have won and I don't think it'll be the last. So hopefully... Maybe we can win one together with the Northern Spin podcast. That'd be lovely. We've come close, haven't we? Got to the final of the um, <laughs> well, Change Makers Award. That yeah, was we got we got shortlisted, and then that was it. No more updates. Um, so uh, I realised that we hadn't won when nobody asked us to attend. But anyway, I'd like to thank our sponsors. Uh, our headline sponsor is FI Real Estate Management. FI Real Estate Management is headquartered in Chorley in Lancashire, but they have a network of properties across the UK which tenants can tap into. They can cater from everyone from a one-man band working from home and needing space to enterprise customers wanting a whole building to themselves as well they don't just work in one sector they work across multiple sectors in the office commercial and industrial markets and uh, fi real estate management pride themselves on growing with their customers on their journey so if you are looking for property the name to remember is fi real estate management and the name in particular is matthew pickles at fi very good Right. So, Chris, let's cut to the chase. Um, we want to discuss on the Northern Spin podcast this week all about the BBC. It's massively important to the economy of the North with huge swathes of the BBC, such as sport, uh, news, digital, 
um, children's, all Emden Religion and BBC Six Music, all decamping to, and Radio 5 Live, of course, mm. all decamping to Media City at Salford Keys. Um, so we want to talk about the BBC. You've been watching lots of BBC content this week. As, yeah. You know, it's unavoidable. You can't not do. So um, tell us what you've been watching this yeah, week. Okay, so um, Celebrity Race Across the World. So I watched the final of that yesterday and the, uh, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. <laughs> also watched the new Sir David Attenborough series, uh, Planet Earth 3. Yeah, filmed over five years across 43 <laughs> countries. Absolutely amazing TV. I think that really does uh, touch people's hearts, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Amazing yeah. journalism as well on the BBC. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so David Attenborough did this piece in the first episode of Planet Earth 3. And he said, when I came back here, when I came here the first time in 1955, and then you realise just, you know, what a legend, um, you know, David Attenborough is. Uh, I've been listening to a podcast series called World of Secrets, the Abercrombie guys, about about the sordi goings on at the fashion brand Abercrombie & Fitch, which resulted, I think, at the back in the last week in former CEO Mike Jeffries facing criminal charges. So that, that emanates from a BBC documentary alongside Panorama as well. I've also listened to my usual fix of newscasts with Adam Fleming and various match commentaries from the Cricket World Cup in India, which I prefer not to have done given England's awful showing. But you know what they've all got in common because you mentioned it earlier. Well, that's right. These are all really, really good examples of high quality content from the BBC. Yeah, yeah that's what their absolute trade mark is yeah and i think the point you want to make is that the bbc for the most part do a brilliant job right yeah i think three percent of their output relates to news and 97 percent of their output relates to non-news they get 97 percent of their complaints probably for their three percent of their news outlets um and and i've listened to so much recently about the whole um you know israel hamas conflict which 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 we're both finding very difficult um even from a distance as well i think the bbc do a brilliant job but they constantly find themselves being lambasted by sections of the mainstream media and politicians alike like the conservative party especially in terms of the media by the daily mail um and it all relates to their uh, news output and i just think that you know it's fine criticize hold them to account but then again you need to mention some of the you know content that's coming out from the likes of lisa Doucette and Jeremy Bowen is amazing and it's it's right that the BBC are held to a higher standard than other media organisations because they're publicly funded but I think people need to be really careful what they wish for because if we were to lose the BBC or get a watered down version of the BBC we would suffer everyone would suffer yeah th let's just let's just recap then about what the BBC is what its unique and special place is in British public life the BBC Charter I'm going to read a bit out I know I tell you not to read stuff yeah. out but yeah. th this is the BBC Charter says the BBC must offer a range and depth of analysis and content so that all audiences can engage fully with major local, regional and national United Kingdom and global issues and participate in the democratic process at all levels as active and informed citizens. Right. That's that's it, the essence of what the BBC is. I'd, I'd sort of boil it down to something much more simpler than that even. The BBC is meant to unite the country. And often at times of crisis, like the death of a monarch, right? Or sometimes the royal weddings, but less, maybe less so. But also during the pandemic, who do you turn to for reliable information and not scaremongering in a, in a kind of a marketplace of really confusing messaging? The BBC is somewhere that's deemed to be reliable. Um, and all over the world, it projects the, the UK's version of what of, of what a good society looks like through things like BBC World Service and BBC News 24. Where I think it's got difficult is I don't think the country's united in what it thinks are a good 
example of British values. But um, you, you did want to just briefly touch on some of the heat that they've had over the current conflict in the Middle East. Yeah, this is the northern spin. So we're not going to do a rehash on what's happening in global politics. But I do think it's important to mention it in the context of the fact that the uh, Israel-Hamas conflict, which is dominating the news agendas, you know, but it, and, and the BBC have made mistakes, but it needs to be set against the context that they do produce 24 hour news. There are a couple of, um, a couple of mistakes that they made. One was in relation to a, the explosion in Gaza city at the Al Ali hospital. And they probably placed too much emphasis on speculation as well. And they had another, um, their reporting of some pro Palestine and protests was can best be described as clumsy. They use those words themselves because they said that, uh, the word they used were people voice their backing for Hamas, but they later accepted there was little evidence of support for Hamas as well. Now, my personal opinion is I think is I think the BBC have done a really good job of covering that, but but they have made mistakes. The difficulty is, and people who started this, in the fog of war, it's difficult to be 100% accurate. And that's the challenge the BBC have got moving forward. Yeah, I think one thing we've got to remember, if we just take a step back from all of the, the, the day-to-day fog of war stuff, is... This, this, the BBC is always a political football in, in culture war battles. Each senior appointment that they make, be it director general, in fact, even the head of news when they hired somebody recently in the last, last couple of years from, um, from, from The Guardian, that became, Jess Brammer, that became a massive political issue about whether the BBC upper echelon should sign it off. Um, they all feel like tactical moves in an ever-increasing and ever-more-bitter culture war exploited by forces that are aligned against the BBC. Um, At surface level, most of the assaults on the BBC at the moment look incessant and relentless. Um, Those committed to its values and founding principles seem to be dug in, but also they seem paralysed in their decision-making. Remember all the stuff around with Gary Lineker, whether he should be speaking out? They didn't really know which way to turn. And I think it's a particular issue for the BBC, but it's not unique to them in the British media. The problem the BBC have got is they're a bit like the NHS. They're huge. They're a little bit unwieldy and they're bureaucratic and they're a little bit top heavy as well. Um, The problems I referred to about some of the mistakes the BBC have made, it's not unique to the BBC, the New York Times, you know, they've, they, you know, they've admitted that they rely too much on claims and reporting of the uh, Al Ali hospital explosion as well. And, and ITV, they've apologised for an interview that they did with an Iranian state TV reporter to discuss uh, Islamophobia. Now, according to the BBC, they reach 500 million people every week. So they've got a huge influence and with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, I wrote a piece for Big Issue in the North in 2021. In fact, you know, I spent most of the 90s reporting on the television industry um, as, as a journalist and the BBC was, was it ever thus that it was a political football? I remember um, being accused of being the Baghdad Broadcasting Corporation by Tory MPs when they weren't as sympathetic during the first Gulf War in the early 1990s. I read a fascinating book by Peter York, who's you know, better known as a cultural and fashion commentator, wrote a book called The War Against the BBC, where he, he dug into some of the campaigns that people on the, on the right wing of politics were waging against the BBC. There was a campaign in 2020 led by supposedly a plucky student called James, James Usel called Defund the BBC. But actually it was, you know, another of these Tufton Street um, advocacy groups backed by the usual, uh, you know, the, right out of the vote leave playbook, bringing into play people like Tommy Robinson to protest outside the BBC with high-profile support, again, from journalists on the Daily Express and The Sun. Mm. Um, So, 
you know, you've given a fairly spirited defense of what you think about the BBC, so have I. Where do you think they've been going wrong? Well, I've always said the BBC strengths is its biggest weakness. So its constitution, which you um, read about out of earlier, uh, it's, its charter actually, it says it has to be impartial. It has to give weight to both sides, but that's fine. The problem is then it, the coverage of Brexit was really poor because they gave time to people. It, it, it was simply telling fibs. At best, they were telling fibs. So then you get this skewed conversation. Um, COVID was the same. I mean, I mean, you've 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 got views on COVID, and you know, one of the examples you've given is the whole issue with Emily Maitlis. Yeah, well, Emily, Emily Maitlis went on BBC Newsnight and said, "Dominic Cummings broke the rules. We know he did. The public know he did, but they're perplexed as to why." <laughs> why Boris Johnson won't admit it. And she was effectively sacked from Newsnight or, or at least put on hold because, because of what she said. And there was nothing in it that was factually incorrect. And it's this idea that because the prime minister, because the government say it, then the BBC shouldn't actually be calling them liars or when in fact they, they completely were. Um, within 24 hours and following a direct complaint, she was booted off the air. She looks back and says she didn't do anything wrong. But, um, you know, you think again about like the anti-vax movement as well. The BBC have done some fantastic stories on that. But I think that puts them up against a huge swathe of public opinion. Um, but again, like you said, there's uh, there's been plenty of examples where the BBC have run into the government over the years, even back to the Falklands War in the, yeah. in the early 80s. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I mean, I, I, was, I was reminded of a quote over the weekend from Norman Tebbit, where he branded the BBC the stateless persons broadcasting corporation because of what he considered to be unpatriotic coverage of the Falklands War. I mean, here's a question, Pete, on the spot. Do you believe, Michael Taylor, the BBC is biased? Right, I'm going to surprise you. Yes, no. I think it is. I think the BBC is biased, but not maybe in the way that you thought when you wanted to frame the question to me. I think all journalism contains essential biases. I think you and I, in the in the business journalism that we do, has an inherent bias towards, you know, business, startups being a force for good in society. Um, I don't think the BBC is any different in its overall stance. It has a bias towards a form of aggressive neutrality that holds everybody in public life to a certain standard of behavior. It has a moral bias towards charity, public service, and kindness. I think it has a bias towards an acceptance of the monarchy as the, as the kind of the base of, of our society. It treated the office of prime minister with a respect that I don't think two recent incumbents of that office necessarily deserved. In fact, I'd say, go as far as to say they disgraced it, but the BBC still treated them with a deference. I think it has a bias towards science. Um, you, know, you, you mentioned the issue about both sides in the Brexit debate and you know having a, an equivalence between, you know, Barry at the dog and duck who says, Brexit will be good for Britain as against a senior economist who says, oh no, it won't. Um, I think that they attempted at various times to have both sides in the climate change debate, which again was a complete mismatch because um, because it's not a fair fight. You know, you know, at best you'd have someone like Nigel Lawson who just, no, I don't think that's right. Whereas the whole weight of science and climate evidence points to that. Um, 
I think it also believes that, yes, there's racism in society, but that inherently multiculturalism is good, which is why you see, you know, a large number of, of people of colour at different places at the front of the BBC, but not necessarily to the same degree behind the scenes. You know, you go into Media City and look around and there won't be as many people um, working in production jobs at the BBC. They might be doing more menial jobs like cleaning and stuff like that, but not in, uh, in production and executive roles in the BBC. Um, so, yeah, and I think it also they have an institutional bias towards a particularly nice way of British life that gets conveyed in soaps, dramas, the one show and antiques roadshow. Do you see what I mean? I th yeah. In terms of the question was, do you think the BBC are biased? I think your answer is very fair. If I was to if I was to say, do you think their news content is biased? I think um, biased to who? Well, I mean, in terms of, um, like, in terms of, do we think, for example, they've been criticised for being, um, in terms of their Israel, you know, coverage but, over but the conflict with Hamas? Often journalism is about choosing, isn't it? It's about, you know, one of my big criticisms of the way that the BBC does politics, and particularly with the way it did politics during COVID, is it was very, very obsessed with the immediate lobby style issues about who said what and who briefed who behind the scenes. Um, I think the whole lobby is a, 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 the lobby being journalists who work covering um, Westminster politics. I think there's a bias towards that in the BBC's political coverage, the exclusion occasionally, unless you have a big popular good communicator as a retail politician like Andy Burnham. He knows how to play the game. But actually, very few regional politicians get much of a voice on the BBC to articulate what people think and feel. It was interesting, actually, during Brexit that Radio 5 journalists knew that the vote was going to go for Brexit because they were closer on the ground in the north of England. Yeah, I don't think the BBC politically are biased. I don't think... If you heard the interview that Nick Robinson did with uh, Rishi Sunak recently when he did his about turn on um, you know on, on sort of environmental laws and, and, and high-speed two and everything, I don't think you could accuse him of giving him an easy time i mean i'm a big uh, i'm a big fan of uh, the political editor chris mason who's from the north incidentally very even-handed with his interviews um, and he'll pit politicians of all persuasion uh, political persuasion uh, under the pump um but i don't think you could accuse them of being biased where i think the bbc let them down, down big style is is the big decisions you know they they're time consuming i thought the way they handled the uh, situation with the former chairman richard sharp was was horrendous i mean richard sharp obviously he um, he facilitated an eight hundred thousand pound loan for the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson yeah, failed that, to declare yeah, it. That was a terrible, terrible appointment. And I think absolutely shame on the government for trying to install one of their people at the top of a national institution. Yeah, and to, to put pressure on, on the BBC. Yeah. And it was a that that decision should have been made well, like within yeah. five minutes. Yeah. Um but but here's the thing, right? The BBC, their annual budget is about five billion, of which three point seven five billion comes from um the license fee. So that's seventy five percent in total. Yeah. The problem that then creates is the BBC are beholden to the government of the day and the Tories have countless times threatened to abolish the licence fee. That is the reason why politicians can bully the BBC. Well, let's not forget, you know, um, I was listening to another podcast the other week with Alistair Campbell on it, um, talking about how disgraceful it was that uh, Tory spin doctors are bullying the BBC. He literally took the BBC on over his dodgy dossier on the Iraq war and, and forced the resignation of both the director general and the chairman of the BBC in fairly short order. Mm. So I think both, both parties have blood on their hands, shall we say, when it comes to dealing with the BBC and uh, using it as a political football. But you wanted to talk as well 
given that this is the Northern Spin podcast, about the BBC in the North. And we can probably break this down into two areas. Media City, yeah. which is like yeah, the BBC as a national institution with a, an enormous base here in Salford Keys. And then secondly, BBC Local TV and Radio. Yeah, I think the BBC's arrival at Media City, I think that was a bit of a game changer at the time. And there was a real sense of identity and personality. And as business journalists, you know, you knew who was the face of the BBC in the North. So you had Peter Salmon as the head of BBC North and Alice Webb as the chief operating officer. Alice Webb, I interviewed a number of occasions. She left, I think, uh, about two, three years ago. I don't think you've got that level of visibility now with BBC's senior execs in the North. Yeah, I had a look at this, actually, when you raised the point as we were preparing. Um, as far as I'm aware, none of the top 10 best paid executives in the BBC are based at Media City. Mm. They'll all be based at either, um, well, at Broadcasting House in central London. Yeah. Where incidentally, did you ever see the um, the comedy show W1A, which was amazing that the BBC produced it? No, I didn't see it. Yeah, it's kind of like The Office or one of these spoof uh, documentaries about a workplace with, with its own arcane bureaucracies, pointless meetings, corporate like nonsense that people speak it's it's well worth looking for i think i think a lot of the it came out of a series called 2012 which was about the olympic organizing committee i think i think it's the, easy to mock some of its internal language yeah. and processes as well i think the fact that the like there's less visible personalities at the top of the bbc at Media City could be construed as a good thing or a bad thing. What I mean by that is they've sort of embedded themselves into the North. It's just become normal now. Part of the UK. Yeah. It's, it's been normalised. I think when the BBC first moved to Media City, yeah, the high-profile presenters like Richard Bacon, Susanna Reid and Nicky Campbell um, travelling up from London rather than move up to the North. I th You've met Nicky Campbell a few times, haven't you? Yeah. yeah what's your, what do you think of him? He's great. Okay. Yeah, I love him. But that's not changed. But that, that, that's changed, isn't it? So there's other presenters like Rachel Burden who I knew when she was in Bristol and Sally Nugent um, presents BBC Breakfast. The impression you get from them is they've really embraced the North as well. And they've almost become ambassadors for the North by default. By yeah, yeah. you can add to that list Nihal Athanarkai, who's really embraced life in the North as a key presenter on BBC Radio 5 Live. You know, but it required some real effort by some very good friends of mine to open up new social circles and cultural opportunities for him. And of course, popping down to the old town general store along from his house in Stockport to uh, go and buy some nice gear off Tony, the owner of that. He's a big Tottenham fan as well, isn't he? He is, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's been a real influx of BBC people at all different levels who've come to parts of Greater Manchester, including where I live in um, in, in Marple. And as I said, Nihal lives in Hazel Grove, just a few, few miles away. Um, let's not forget as well that Media City is the home of digital innovation in the BBC. You know, in the teeth of technological challenges for with all the burgeoning on-demand uh, services like Netflix, Prime, you know, the BBC has done pretty well with um, the iPlayer, um, BBC Sounds, collaborations with ITV on the BritBox streaming service. And I think they've managed to keep the BBC fairly technologically relevant to audiences, even though, you know, I think obviously their exposure to young people has probably diminished. We've got, in this very episode of Northern Spin today, we are watched by a student of the University of Salford. And one of the issues that was raised in the early years of the BBC in Media City is how many people from Salford are working at the BBC. Now, I haven't got any figures on that, but I'd be interested to know whether there was a pathway between the University of Salford and the BBC. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope well, so. Well, there was certainly a really, uh, like you said, you mentioned Alice Webb before. I met her a few times when I was working at Manchester Metropolitan University. 
one of the big projects that I worked on was the School of Digital Arts, as it's now known. And, you know, we had to raise money from government to get that uh, signed off. And the BBC were an absolute integral pillar of that project and their collaboration with the university in creating a real centre of excellence to help bring that talent through in, um, in media content creation. But something else, though, as well, it's about attracting big, important global institutions to somewhere like the North and making people feel comfortable here. You know, it's not a cultural desert. I think we got over that sort of 12, year, 12 years ago when there was some reluctance from the likes of Richard Bacon to move up here. In the course of the last week, I went to two events in Manchester City Centre. One was hosted by a French shipping giant, CMA CGM, and the other was by American bank, JP Morgan. And they both opened up in Manchester and the, you know, the relocated people here. There's a real momentum that the BBC can play as being an important part of that shifting narrative that says the North, Manchester in particular, has a place for that kind of executive entrepreneurial class to feel at yeah, home in. But where I think the BBC's got to be really careful, they can't just say job done. You know, look at us, we've moved well, to I Media City. My point. I don't think yeah. they do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just an idea, just thinking aloud. But I mean, can you imagine if they had a, a weekly TV show called, say, Northern Spin with two <laughs> middle-aged white guys <laughs> yeah. where we talk politics in the North? I mean, I think that could be a winner. Um, let's go super local now. So over the years, we've both appeared on BBC Radio and BBC Northwest Tonight for our views on business and politics. I was once interviewed about cryptocurrency. I've been um, on BBC National News. I'm not surprised. I'm yeah, not and surprised. Radio 5 Live. Yeah, yeah. That's the important thing. I mean, not just the local stuff, but yeah. actually getting on, the, on getting northern voices in in our world on the national news. Well, I think I it's editor, great. When I was the editor of Charlie Guardian, I was asked, I was asked three times to appear on the Jeremy Vine show, and I think he wanted a real voice, somebody in the north, albeit with a southern accent. Um, so I want to talk about local radio and TV. So as part of its charter, the BBC has funded the Local Democracy Reporting Service, which created up to 165 new journalism jobs um, to help fill the gap in the reporting of local democracy issues. We've spoken a lot actually about the well, people talk about the thin blue line in place the thin line in local media is becoming ever thinner and i think the bbc have tried to plug that gap haven't they yeah they definitely are i think the local democracy reporters have basically just been a resource that's been used by the local papers and the bbc have footed the bill for them and it helps them to cover council meetings how would you more broadly then describe the health of the bbc across the north well i think it's um i'm, well, wor I'm really worried about it I'm, I'm i'm worried about the local media and i'm worried about the bbc on a local level as well so radio which are the the industry uh, listener figures uh, who monitor you know radio uh, stations across the UK they've uh, they've reported that BBC local radio suffered a 20% fall in listeners in the last two years on the back of uh, some pretty brutal staffing and programming cuts so you'd have BBC Radio Lancashire they would share the same output as BBC Radio Manchester as well I think there's some talented journalists in the BBC locally um, and a lot of those go on to national radio as well I think you saw some of that talent evidence when the uh, Liz Trust was taken down in a series of BBC radio interviews in 2022 but but i genuinely i do worry about the yeah. future of bbc radio uh, on a local level they did an amazing job didn't they those local journalists yeah they did yeah. but the thing is they can't just be they can't just be seen as once a year putting the mp or putting the prime minister under pressure and 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 i've got to say you know what's been the groundbreaking um you know content coming out of local radio and local um tv if you just cut back and cut back and cut back and you make more and more people redundant then it becomes harder and harder yeah 
So I think on balance, you know, so that's that's a really good jog through the BBC and the issues that they face. Um, well done for putting it together and, and giving us the the prompt to do this. It's been a really useful exercise. I hope people have liked it. But one big problem, and I do need to say this as well, is that I was talking to my daughter who's 23 and I said, what do you think of the BBC? She said, don't watch it. I'll watch Netflix. And that's going to be their big challenge, engaging with a younger audience. So once again, you do all this great journalistic yeah. work and you reduce it to an anecdote from your family. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Because I've spoken to other young people as well. And that's a challenge they've got. And and you know that's a challenge they've got. I mean, that's a typical you, that is. Coming in with a snide <laughs> remark. You've got five kids. No, you've got five kids. So they, they watch are, the BBC. They are, they are not. A, they are not. A scientific sample. No, it's I not, know they're not a scientific sample, but a lot of young people don't engage in the BBC because they watch Netflix and stream services. Facts. Yes, listen, listen to me, Chris. Yeah. My point was, you came up with a figure. You, you analysed the radar figures that show that BBC have a twenty percent fall in listeners in the last two years. Right. Mm. That yeah. is a scientific fact yeah. based on evidence. Yeah. You just asking your daughter, therefore, young people don't watch the BBC. No, that's, that's it's, an, it's not. That's an anecdotal example, but I <laughs> not, think, not I think it reflects. Fact. No, it's not backed up by a huge pool of people, but and I'll do this and I'll, I'll task you with it as well. You will find all the effort the BBC are putting in is to attract the younger audience. Facts. You can't deny it. It is. The train. They're trying, They're trying. massively. Yeah. You know, iPlayer is an example. On that note, yeah. let's go to a break and hear from our sponsor, Assets Capital. Assets Capital is a leading Manchester-based independent specialist lender who for the last 10 years have supported UK SME, house builders, property investors and business owners to achieve their ambitions. Having lent over 1.7 billion to date and with ambitious growth plans, assets are well on their way to breaking through the 2 billion of lending as they embark on the next phase of their journey. They have a dedicated team of property professionals and lending specialists who pride themselves on getting to know their customers and being with them on every step of the journey. If you need a straightforward, no-nonsense lending partner with a proven track record, contact Andrew Charnley and the team at Assets Capital. Big enough to matter, small enough to care. Welcome back to part two of Northern Spin and our regular features, anything to see here and on manoeuvres. We're going to start with the fact that it's been another tough week for Keir Starmer over the Israel-Hamas conflict. There you go, Chris. Facts. Absolutely. I'm not disputing that. That's not rooted in anecdote. That's rooted in facts. No, and actually, if we were to share the fact that we've got three people who are considerably younger than us, uh, you know, recording this podcast today, and we asked them, do they watch the BBC? And they said no. And you said, line of duty? And they said no, but we've heard it's very good. Fact. Okay. <laughs> so uh, what I don't want to do is summarize this into a soundbite in terms of anything to see here, because it's a bit more detailed than this. But I think it'd be quite helpful to explain why do you think Labour and Keir Starmer are coming under so much more pressure in relation to the Israel-Hamas conflict than, say, Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives are? I think it comes down to the very simple fact that the Muslim community feel extremely aggrieved over the issues in the Middle East. I think uh, grievance in foreign policy issues globally are playing out on a daily basis at the moment. The feeling within that community runs very deep that Israel is a rogue state that oppresses their people, their people. The war exposes that fault line in the world between the Muslim world and what they hold dear. 
And and I think the Muslim vote has been presumably is more likely to be aligned to Labour than it is to the Conservatives, mm. particularly with a with Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister, who's identified again in one of these cultural fault lines as being of uh, Indian Hindu mm. uh, background. I think that the, the Muslim community therefore are quite rightly, from their point of view anyway, demanding that Labour take a clearer stance on this conflict than, than the one that Starmer opened with, which was unqualified support for Israel and saying that they have a right to defend themselves. That's why there've been all these calls for a ceasefire. We spoke about it on last week's podcast. A couple of things have happened in the last week. So London Mayor Sadiq Khan and Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham have joined calls for a ceasefire. The party's record on um, Islamophobia has been criticised and nearly 40 East Lancashire Labour councillors have called on the party leader Starmer to take a tougher line on Israeli military brutality. Their words, not mine. Starmer's response repeatedly has been to call for more aid and the Labour leader decided to uh, visit a Cardiff mosque. Can best be described as a PR disaster. See, whatever he's done this week hasn't really worked. Is there anything to see here? Yeah, I think it is. I'd go along with that. I think Labour can well remember how George Galloway, you remember him? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the meow cat man. I absolutely can't stand George Galloway for the record. He picked off the Muslim community and exploited, exploited their grievances in two different constituencies where he stood as an MP and successfully, Tower Hamlets and Bradford. He tried the same thing in Batley and Spen in the by-election and ran Kim Ledbetter quite close, if you remember. And I think certain sections of the British left feel very comfortable making that common cause with the anti-imperialist language of the struggle of the Muslim world. I think it's a mistake. I don't know if you remember, but there was a video of left-wing Labour MP Richard Bergen Mm. making a speech demanding, um, railing against Zionism is the enemy of peace. And the audience, when it panned out and when people walked around the back of the stage, you could see the audience was made up entirely of Pakistani men in his constituency in Leeds. And that's my point, is I think that a lot of people on that wing of politics have always pandered to that very anti-Israeli, and I'm going to be take a step forward further and say, and anti-Semitic attitudes that weren't confronted, but were in fact nurtured within, uh, within, within the far left. I do find a lot of the posturing on this issue. The, uh, I did sigh a little bit when I saw the letter from Andy Burnham and the other Greater Manchester leaders on this issue. It reminded me that I'd also seen earlier in the week a picture of a meme of Benjamin Netanyahu looking a little bit sort of down, downbeat, saying, oh, no, we're going to have to call the invasion off. Frankie Boyle signed a letter. Mm. You know, they're opposition politicians in the UK. What on earth do they think? They're going to have any impact whatsoever. They don't have any power or sway of whether there'll be a ceasefire in the Middle East, one way or the other. Yeah, I think um, I think Starmer's being treated increasingly as a prime minister in waiting. Every word that he says now is now being scrutinised. He got himself in trouble with the interview on LDC where he was a little bit clumsy and a bit clunky with his wording. He did make a clarification. I think he's in an impossible position as well. I think he has pledged to pull anti-Semitism um, in the Labour Party out by its roots at the start of his uh, leadership. Now Labour's being accused of Islamophobia. Um, I think he's in a difficult um, bind there. Another Labour question question for you. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves has been accused of plagiarism after apparently copying chunks of her book, The Women Who Made Modern Economics. Anything to see here? 
Mm, yes and no. Yeah, I think um, she needed to have been far more careful in the referencing of quotes. Often, you know, the the, the top line biographical you know, details about certain people that she wrote about in much more detail in the book weren't properly referenced. They were just kind of copied from Wikipedia, which is a, you know, a well-sourced um, reference point, which I think most people would go back to and trust. And I think a publisher really should have checked those out a little bit more. Uh, so I think it was a sloppy piece of work in that regard. But I think it does show that she's on manoeuvres, trying to position herself as an intellectual, but she's probably taken one step forward and two steps back as a result of this. I think it highlights once again that it's a lot easier in opposition than it is in government because once again, everything she does and says will be scrutinised. Every word that she says will be run through algorithms, etc., etc. Um, so I think it was a bad week for her, big style. And I don't think she's come out of it with any credit. Um, Labour have to raise their game because the microscope is firmly on them. Incidentally, I want to mention a local MP, Haywood and Middleton MP, Chris Clarkson. He's only, uh, he's not standing at the next general election. He's written to the Commissioner for Standards over Angela Rayner's comments on LBC that Rishi Sunak left the Tory conference on a private jet. Clearly this is mischief making of the highest order, but loose ships, Michael, sorry, loose lips, sink ships. <laughs> anyway, here's one for you with your uh, You're not going to comment on that one? You're not going to comment on that? Um... You know, Angela Rain a bit loose with her uh, wording. No, I think I think the, the the I think it's a good thing, and all he's doing actually it's terrible politics because it's it's actually reminding people who don't pay much attention to politics that Rishi Sunak is a habitual taker of private jets. Yeah, but he it, didn't take a private jet from the uh, from the conference. That's but he's the point. taken plenty of other private jets. Yeah, yeah, but you can't say okay because so what taken, did he do? Did he take an Avanti train? Uh, well, no, they it, didn't because they cancelled them. They were uh, they were on strike that week. No, but the point is, Angela Rayner said that he caught a private jet from the Troy conference but as far as I can tell he didn't so Angela Rayner's was wrong facts that's what I'm saying loose <laughs> I think it's fair game anyway one for you with your tech hat on no doubt you yeah. got the bunting out to celebrate Rishi Sunak last week with his speech on AI yeah, yeah, at Bletchley was, Park of all places. Yeah, 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 and it's also his uh, first year in office as well. Um, so this week we're recording this on Monday. It's the Global AI Safety Summit at Bletchley Park, um, where uh, you know where the uh, where, where the code the code breakers were during World War Two. Um, I think it was uh, really interesting because the thing with Rishi Sunak is, and you've said this before, he's not comfortable in front of the camera, but he is comfortable in front of the camera talking about technology. Um, he could have saved his speech for the actual um, Global AI Safety Summit. It's Itself, but chose not to wanted to get some more airtime I also think he wanted to uh, you know talk about the issue of China because uh, Liz Truss his predecessors written a letter saying that they shouldn't be invited which is typical Liz Truss uh, no one gives her any credibility and he said no we've got to invite China and most experts as well would say we've got to invite China as well so I think the whole AI agenda this week is going to be massive. And I think uh, and I think Rishi Sunak is on manoeuvres because he's yeah. talking about something you feel comfortable. And also bearing in mind his links with Silicon Valley in the US as well. Yeah, it certainly does play to his strengths. So mm. it's it's an opportunity for him to take his reputation away from private jets and gaffes at Tory conference. Yeah, private so, gaffes, you know, and, and private jets, you know, but not from the Tory conference. Just to, Michael, just to be factually correct, something you're very keen on. <laughs> so who else is on manoeuvres 
there's a, a conservative theme to this in a big way. Uh, the first candidate is uh, Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister, is to join GB News or oh. Gammon News, as you would say. Or Gammon Britain News. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, he's, uh, yeah, so he's going to be joining GB News in the new year alongside half the Conservative Party. I think he's desperate to stay relevant. Interestingly, uh, former Chancellor George Osborne has claimed that. Uh, quote, disgusting and misogynistic WhatsApps between Johnson and Dominic Cummings will come out at the COVID inquiry this week. I mean, Dominic Cummings is due to give evidence tomorrow, Tuesday. And I think various members of Number 10's um, PR uh, team are also going to give evidence as well. I think this could be a terrible week for Boris Johnson. Well, it ultimately could also be a terrible week for Rishi Sunak, because as you said, he's trying to relaunch or at least put himself on a positive footing and, it, and the news is going to be drowned out, I think. All that we, we talked about this at Labour conference, it, it was drowned out by the war in Gaza. I think, um, yeah. Anyway, listen, but Boris Johnson, he's a joke, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Someone called him a pound shop Nigel Farage in the latter stages of his premiership. And he's not even that anymore. And I think any, he's, he's, he's not even as credible as someone like Trump. He's become more Trump than Trump. Yeah, and going on, I heard a rumor last week actually that Gammon Britain News might be merging with that that other one that Murdoch owns, Talk News or something. I don't watch either, but you know, I heard uh, talking of rumors. Um, I heard a rumor that um, Nigel Farage is going to be appearing in the latest program of uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Oh. Absolutely, uh, which which I I, for, I think it's no. the first time so far today we've actually agreed on something. Uh, no. The next name I want to give you on manoeuvres, another conservative, um, is uh, Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. We've now, done it before, haven't we? Yeah, we did it recently actually, where she was doing an interview on ITV, and when the uh, filming stopped, she said off air, she said that uh, why can't the public thank us for doing an effing good job? She's from Knowlesley originally. Um, obviously, it didn't do her credibility much good. So what you're seeing now is you're seeing a little bit of. Uh, warm PR in, in publications that are warm to the Conservatives, like the Daily Mail, big piece at the weekend, where she spoke very bravely, actually, I think, about her unsuccessful treatment at IVF, um, but talks about the relationship she's got with her stepchildren as well. It was a nice piece, but definitely on manoeuvres, definitely trying to carry favour. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you, Chris. Okay, let's, let's caption that and do it as a TikTok video. <laughs> yes, I agree with you, Chris. Yeah, don't take that out of context, okay. though. Right, okay. time for a quick break. Business Cloud was founded in 2016 and our tagline is fast to grow through tech every morning. Our newsletter lands directly in your inboxes all over the UK and all over the world and provides insight with Byte. Our Tech 50 rankings shine a spotlight on sectors as diverse as fintech, pop tech, health tech and other uh, sectors as well. Our recent Fuel Manchester event won rave reviews and we've got exciting plans for Fuel to take it uh, far and wide in 2024. Business Cloud is the name you can trust in business. Welcome back to part three of Northern Spin. Now, this is supposed to be the fun bit where Chris and I talk about cultural things. We had a good chat about Northern Soul last week, didn't we? We did, yeah. People was, spoke a lot about your T-shirt and the fact that it had an S in it as well, yeah. which I thought was quite funny. Yeah, yeah. it did, yeah. yeah I bought yeah. it in Stockport from yeah. this T-shirt shop. And, uh, and somebody pointed out that it said, Northern Soul keeps the faith rather than keep the faith, mm. which is the usual slogan. Mm. I just say KTF people. Anyway, um, but anyway, something quite serious. Obviously, the, the actor Matthew Perry, star of TV's Friends, died at the weekend. I think the inquest will establish what 
happened to him, but he's been no stranger to honesty and he's spoken quite openly about his struggles with addiction, both for alcohol and um, and prescription medicine. Anyway, it's been a tough week for our family as well. We've um, we've we've had an inquest into the death of our sister-in-law, which was just awful. And my wife, Rachel, wrote a very brave and poignant um uh, post on social media channels over the weekend linked to Matthew Perry, but also linking it to our beloved Rena as well. And she said, if you don't mind me, if you indulge me, if I could just... Uh, no, no I read it on LinkedIn. Share, share some of it. Yeah. Um, Matthew Perry's addiction to alcohol and opiates will probably factor in his inquest. Who knows? Anyone who's loved his work will miss the fact that he's left this mortal coil at the age of just 54. Having attended the inquest of my beloved sister this week, I want to scream. When will we wake up to the elephant in the room? Alcohol and our normalization of its presence in everyday situations is killing people we love or slowly killing us. We order pourer drink for everything. It's the weekend. I've had a bad day. I need to de decompress. It's wine o'clock. It's a celebration. It's a funeral. I'm stressed. We're having a meal. We're at the airport. It's 5 a.m. It's a habit. Alcohol is as addictive a drug as any. When it gets its hold, a person will hide away its hold on them. They'll deny it. They'll lie. They'll make light of it. And then Rachel goes on to say, in April 2021, I asked myself, can I manage without it? She didn't think she would, but she has. And she joined me on my abstinence from alcohol, which I've not touched a drop since 2011. Yeah, powerful words. Um, I think, um, yeah, you know, and I know, Rachel wouldn't, she's not demonizing people who drink as well. She's just expressing the fact that it's, um, you know, too many people turn to drink. Yeah, um, I think that's the point she's making is we've normalized it as part of our culture. And we're conscious of that, given that, you know, we have we have five kids between us. And, you know, we're worried about the kind of, you know, normalizing alcohol use on and binge drinking in particular and the damage that it does to, to young people and the, the habits that it forms. We, we, we spoke earlier about uh, whether or not young people are engaging with the BBC and I did a straw poll of four young people and they all agreed that they don't watch a lot of the BBC but they all watch Friends. So waking up to the news that Matthew Perry had died at the age of 54, I decided to uh, do what I tend to do and just Google a bit about him. And uh, I saw an interview that he did with um, with the journalist Peter Hitchens on Newsnight in 2013. I'm very mindful that when you see stuff on social media and they cherry pick a 40-second uh, a, a uh, snippet, then it can it, it can be a bit misleading as well. But uh, the general view was they were talking about drug courts and um, Hitchens spoke about his uh, the the fantasy of addiction and that people have a choice and it's all about willpower as well. And Matthew Perry's point was that alcoholism and drug use is an addiction. And the problem that he had was he could control having the first drink, but if he had that first drink, he couldn't control having the second, third, fourth and fifth. And I thought that was incredibly sad as well. Um, and it was, uh, it was very powerful watching that mm. 10 years afterwards on the day that he died. Yeah. Particularly, yeah, watching that now must have been tough. Yeah, yeah. it was, yeah, it was, yeah. And anyway. also you look at it and you think to yourself, what a what a waste, what a waste. Um, anyway, it, after all that heaviness, yeah. we, we, we do try and make this the fun bit. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, what have you been up to? So, uh, I went to Liverpool on... You are uh, touring the North West, aren't you? So yeah, you've done yeah, Lancaster yeah. recently. Yeah, did Lancaster. Like, so, Illuminations. We've, uh, we've done it 
we are going back to Blackpool in the next couple of weeks, actually. But my wife uh, saw something advertised for the River of Lights Festival at Liverpool. Okay. I'll be honest with you. Uh, my thoughts weren't, uh, weren't weren't turned that way. But I went. Uh, went with our youngest daughter who was back from Leeds as well. Now, the uh, it's basically the River of Lights is <coughs> and it, um, it's described as an illuminated artwork trail and attracted, last year they did it, attracted a quarter of a million people. It's basically 12, like, you know, light stalls. And I'll be, be honest, I wasn't massively excited. I, I we went for lunch, uh, sort for sorry for dinner, and we came out about five to nine, uh, not realizing that they turned the lights off at night, literally. <laughs> so we turned up at these, uh, you know, the, uh, the the river of lights. I saw more lights driving home when we saw the traffic lights, um, but it was. Uh, we went, we had a nice meal. Uh, what have you been reading recently? Well, I read a book called Jane Harper, who was actually born in Manchester, but it's very much an Australian. Exiles, wasn't it, by Jane Harper? Yeah, yeah. Exiles. Yeah. It's the fifth book I think I've read by her, and the, I, I recommend them all. Absolutely. How long does it take you to read a book? Now, I know it depends on how big the book is, but you read a lot of books. I, you know, I listen to a lot of books. Uh-huh. You, but how long would it take you typically to read a book? Well, when I'm on holiday, I can probably get through one a day. But um, it's difficult when you just read kind of half an hour at night. It mm. can take <laughs> can take weeks. Yeah, as I'm finding at the moment. <laughs> yeah. With your book. <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed. No. Right, so that's all for episode eight of season five of the Northern Spin podcast. If you want to sponsor us, please get in touch. We're on Apple Podcasts. Please review us. Don't forget to press subscribe if uh, you go through that uh, through Spotify or or Apple. Follow us on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin One, or watch us and subscribe to our YouTube channel and soon our TikTok channel, which you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. we were number seven in Singapore this week, our <sighs> podcast. I'm going to have to go to Singapore. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Thank you to What Media for recording this podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, FI Real Estate Management, Assets Capital, and Business Cloud. Absolutely. Special mention to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. His track, New Beginnings, is our title music. My name, as ever, is Michael Snidey Taylor. And my uh, name as ever is Chris. Happy Clappy, always see the best in people and try not to drop your standards just for other people's sake. Thank you.